You're listening to the Behavior Change Marketing Bootcamp Podcast for people passionate about making a positive change. We believe understanding your audience is the key to maximum impact, and behavioral science takes this to a whole new level. Join your host, Ruth Dale, and expert guests to explore biases, beliefs, why we do what we do, and why we don't do what we said we would do. Hey, a quick question for you before the episode starts. Do you want to up-level your communications with the must-have behavioral science skills of 2021? If that's a yes, then come and join the hundreds of professionals that have already been through bootcamp. The next date is October the 19th, 2021. And we have got an awesome, incredible, amazing bonus for you. So I'm going to leave you hanging and check it out at www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp. I'm delighted to welcome a very special guest from down in Australia with us today. His name is Luke van der Baker and he was once formerly the director of the National Social Marketing Centre. For all of those of you who perhaps haven't heard of that centre, it was around before the Behavioural Insights Unit and it really was the founding centre of all social marketing really established the training across the NHS and local authorities and was incredible in paving the way for a lot of the core concepts that really infuse and drive marketing today. So Luke now is based back down in Perth and he is the founder and managing director of the Behaviour Change Collaborative, which is a social enterprise what, how would you describe it, Luke? Influencing behaviour and improving lives. So yes. he's moved from England, spreading the love, to down into Perth. Yes, we're spreading the love globally. Lives. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So I'll hand over to you, Luke, and just say a little bit about yourself. If you could share a little bit about your days at the National Social Marketing Centre, that would be fantastic. All right, so thank you and good morning. It's morning over there, so really pleased to be here. Yeah, I sort of after 15 years in non-profit marketing uh, for a range of different NGOs and charities here, uh, we moved over to the UK on what was supposed to be a working holiday actually in 2008, early 2008. And I was fortunate enough initially just to land a management position at the National Social Marketing Centre and was working on the social determinants of health so the WHO work that was going on at that time and providing strategic marketing advice, so upstream social marketing work around social determinants after the WHO uh, commission. And so Gordon Brown had launched the, the Health and Equalities Review under Michael Marmot, so did that for a few years. And then in 2010, became a director of the centre after Jeff French moved on and worked with John Bromley and a few other the directors to yeah really do a whole range of really different and interesting things both domestically as you mentioned in the NHS and building capacity there but also for a range of other sort of government departments and quangos but also increasingly we were building a reputation internationally so we were doing a lot of work overseas as well on a range of different social marketing programs and a lot of trading and capacity building which is very much what I think the centre 
Vienna was well known for. Oh, that's fantastic, Luke. And so you went back to Australia, back to Perth. And what happened then? Yeah, so we left. We spun the NSMC out and you alluded to the Behavioural Insights team uh, coming online under David Cameron. So I sort of of steered the National Social Marketing Centre out of government into a social enterprise, so a community interest company over there. And that still exists today. So John Bromley is still rolling with that. So not at the same scales as it used to be. And yeah, basically founding director of that, but came back for family. All my family's here in Perth, West Australia. So set up a social enterprise called Behaviour Change Collaborative and really was looking to do social marketing uh, much like I've been doing uh, in the UK and elsewhere. And just really it was, you know, I got to that point after by that stage 20 plus years working in government and or NGOs and for other people, really sort of seeing that there were different ways of coming at things and maybe doing things a little better. And so, yeah, like many other social entrepreneurs, set up a social enterprise uh, and, and really we've now been going for 10 years and we do a huge range of different um, bits and pieces of work, but all centred around influencing behaviour uh, to improve lives. So most of the early work was in public health, which has been... I guess, my background primarily, but we do a lot now, uh, particularly in climate and sustainability uh, related behaviours and increasingly quite a bit in social welfare also. Brilliant. And when you say you did sort of move from 20 years in central government and working public health and Mm. into the social enterprise sector, just I know this just slight tangent, how did you feel? How liberating did it feel to sort of be able to help a wider range of people what would you say were the bonuses were of actually you know working outside of the government yeah it's a good question I think for me at the time I was just I'd sort of started out many many years ago like my first job after working in Bangladesh as a journo sort of got it's quite an eye-opening experience so came back and worked for the Red Cross was really quite idealistic and wanted to change the world and I think after 20 years in the system uh, for want of a better word I, I started to feel like I wasn't really seeing much progress on a lot of things that bothered me a few decades earlier so what was nice about setting up for myself was I guess A, there was a lot of flexibility in terms of what I was able to do with work-life balance. Family's always been really important so that was a, a key determiner for me but also I think the variety of things that I was able to put my hand to and increasingly with the network that we were able to build you know we we work across so many different policy spheres across so many different issues so that I really do enjoy I think oftentimes I've been on you know you'd spend a few years on single issues and as important as they were I think I learned that I like to be able to cross-pollinate ideas from different sectors and different areas and different learnings and apply those to problems in different settings. So that's probably the most rewarding element of of the BCC for me. Oh, thanks, Luke. I love that idea that we cross-pollinate and take ideas from different sectors. Mm. And that kind of leads us nicely into the theme of today's session, which is looking at a couple of the core social marketing 
principles that if communications and marketing professionals, they can adopt and use these concepts in their everyday communications, their everyday activities to help improve their reach and improve their impact. So these core principles, they're they're not just for the agencies. They're not just for when you're writing an agency brief or where you need to commission someone. They're really principles that every good communicator should look to try and adapt in order to really resonate and understand their audience. Mm. So I think, yeah, as you're saying, and people don't operate in silos or just one policy, do they? So the idea that you can cross pollinate really just brings you closer to people's lives anyway. We all, you know, we're all running, especially now lockdown is easing over here in England. We're having to gear back up and get used to running from this to that and, you know, being outside. And yeah, our lives are you know, hugely busy and complex. So Luke, if you could, in from your perspective and with your experience, just explain a little bit about the key social marketing concepts, reward and exchange, and how they will help people understand their audience. Yeah, sure. So I think with exchange, in fact, I think with most things in social marketing, there's a lot of common sense in terms of what we look to do. So the exchange concept's been around for a long, long time. I mean, it, originally it was, uh, you know, it's a theory that falls out of psychology, but applied to marketing. And in commercial marketing, it's very much a transactional thing. So, you know, you know, as a consumer, you exchange X amount of dollars for a product or service that you perceive to be of benefit. And the idea being that you look to optimize your value, uh, or sorry, the value that you receive from that exchange. So, as marketers in a commercial setting, you're looking to optimize that value for your customers. And as I say, typically it is quite transactional. In social marketing, what we're looking to do is get people to exchange behaviours. And, and more often than not, it's getting people to swap out something that they quite enjoy for something that is maybe perhaps not giving them the same level of gratification. So, you know, in public health, that's, you know, wanting them to sort of reduce the amount that they're drinking or drive a bit more safely or quit smoking, all of these, you know, usual chestnuts. So it's about for us in social marketing, understanding that really for individuals and groups uh, within society as a whole, that exchange, that proposition looks different to different people and to different groups. And so in social marketing, another of the key criteria that the NSMC used to have or still has is around customer orientation. So it's about understanding what you need to do in terms of maximising benefits and minimising costs so that you can actually have an individual take up a new behaviour and or continue maintain an existing behaviour or cease and desist the behaviour that we perhaps prefer that they weren't undertaking. So and it, as, it, it's quite a challenge, you know, in social marketing, it is quite a challenge because you're oftentimes also competing against much bigger budgets and where, again, in commercial marketing, often there's instant gratification. So the benefits that you receive from an exchange happen at a given point in time. So, you know, you want to get that stickers bar at the supermarket, you hand over the dollars, you get the stickers bar, you're, sa- you know, you're satisfied. In social marketing, the benefits are often much, much further down the track. In the case of smoking, oftentimes the main benefits are decades away. And we know through behavioural science that people discount those future benefits and really look at how much is this costing me up front. So behavioural economists will call that hyperbolic discounting, but it's a really important concept um, and it, it just informs how we need to go about presenting choices 
to individuals and communities to maximise opportunities for them to adopt behaviours that we would like to see them undertake. That's fantastic, Luke. So I'm just going to break that down because we've had loads of nuggets of wisdom in there for anyone sort of starting out or trying to get their head around how to use social marketing. So one of the key phrases I absolutely loved was you said to maximise benefits and minimise costs. Yes. And actually the good communicator can do is in how they present the choices so that the audience feels that they are getting the the maximum benefits that they can. And to really understand and Although we say it time and time again, people do not see long-term health benefits as a reward. It is not a reward. Even though public health policy says it everywhere will save lives and everything, it just doesn't work. And there are so many intrinsic rewards that we Mm. could be looking to build and understand and present in our messaging instead of, um, you know, expecting people to still defer to the future because that's still really one of the most common errors we see across public health communications is still this uh, long-term health messaging. Yeah, I think we sort of come from this sort of information deficit model whereby we think that providing people with information is going to somehow shape choices. Certainly, it's important to sort of build knowledge, build awareness of particular issues, but ultimately in terms of driving behaviour, factual-based communications, information-based communications are useful to a point, but behavioural comms is a different beast altogether. And in behavioural comms, what we're looking to do, as you've alluded to, is look to ways that we can actually probably focus a little more on some of those intangibles, appeal to emotions, frame messages a little differently so that it goes beyond just fact-based messaging to messaging that resonates, moves, motivates uh, individuals and communities to behave or or develop an attitude in a a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. And so it really builds the case really strongly, doesn't it, for the other principles really, which is why it's so important to understand your audience. You need to do the deep dives. You need to do the engagement with your audience to understand what these motivating messages could be, what the rewards are, even what the exchange for that person is. And as I think you said at the beginning, and it can be different for different people. Hence, you know, you can take a very loose, it doesn't have to be a difficult approach to segmentation, but you can take a very loose approach just by simply you know, starting with the understanding that people are different and they may have different rewards. So if you are leading with your messaging from reward, then, you know, it will help you look at a mass audience and break it up slightly differently. Do you have, I know you've probably got tons, what sort of examples could you share to bring this to life? Yeah, I think, I guess for me, one of the mistakes that often gets made with communications and behaviour change slash social marketing campaigns more broadly is that we do the engagement piece too late on. And so for me, one of the things that I really enjoy about what we do at the Behaviour Change Collaborative is really try to get involvement at the problem definition stage. So rather than the old-fashioned expert-led top-down, you know, folks sitting around a room getting data about what they to see you know, what, is, what is clearly a, an issue or a problem, but not understanding that that data doesn't equate to insight. So it's not actually telling us you know, why things are happening, it's just telling us what's happening. And so by getting people involved at the problem definition phase, and this is where 
these, you know, co-design and a lot of these fields are starting to come to the fore, it, it's really powerful because it then allows you to segment and develop interventions that actually address problems as they manifest on the ground, as opposed to how we think they do. And it also allows us to frame communications in ways that talk to those problems as they manifest on the ground, as opposed to communications that are almost always framed around how we see the problem to be and how we think it would likely manifest. So that's really important. And I mean, a few, like one classic example of really just opening one's ears and listening to what's being said, we did a project it's four or five years ago now where we were working in the family and domestic violence space. It was an action research project and there was a range of pilots being undertaken throughout Australia and, and we were working with a women's shelter called Kulkuna here in Perth. And we thought we had a pretty good handle on what the issue was in terms of uh, family and domestic violence and how it impacted the community that we were looking to work in. And so, you know, being pretty smart behavioural science sorts, we started framing sort of behavioural goals and, and, and doing all the sorts of things that we tell everybody not to do and went in basically with a project goal of increasing help-seeking behaviours. So we wanted women, if they were coming unstuck, to act in different ways and seek help in, in different ways. We went to community with that. So we were working with a Aboriginal community primarily and, and, and spoke to them about what they thought. I can't repeat exactly what they said on <laughs> on the podcast. There was plenty of expletives. <laughs> but basically what they were saying to us was, well, actually, we just need to stop the violence. Like, So we took that on board and we completely reworked the entire project plan, the behavioural goals, and, and the whole shape of the project shifted to meet what was the clear, clearly expressed need on the ground of that community, and that was to do something about the violence itself. And I think even for someone like me who will sort of go around and, and talk to the import of doing this, sometimes, you know, you get so caught up and or you, your procurement wants you to do things in a certain way, I think it, it's really important to be able to just go and listen and talk and really understand what it is a community wants because otherwise you're just not going to get any buy-in or engagement. And so we, we ended up, as a result of that, we sort of were clearly able to demonstrate we were listening. We had a, a lot of community engagement and had a really good outcome with that project. And I think that if we hadn't done that, if we hadn't listened, if we hadn't worked with community around what that problem actually was in their eyes and in their lived experience, then I don't think we would have had the outcomes that we ended up achieving. Oh, that's so interesting. And it's such a difficult subject, domestic violence. And I know here in England, there's been a lot of focus and attention on increasing domestic violence campaigns and expanding reach mm. due to the pressures of, you know, the extended lockdown. And there's a lot of pressure on people now to just to do something and quite quickly, you know, we're, we've been very much since COVID in a very responsive mode mm. where, you know, it, the idea is, you know, we just need to reach as many people as we can, as fast as we can, you know, just get this information out. But as you say, actually, that can do you more damage in the long run. That doesn't necessarily mean the most vulnerable communities will be receptive. Well, it's receptive and it's what can they do with the information. So, I mean, we I actually do a lot in a voluntary capacity in the sort of family and domestic violence space and violence against women space. And, and there is a lot 
over here of as well of uh, sort of campaign messaging and really you know saying no to violence it's not acceptable trying to establish you know social norms in and around what is and isn't acceptable but we still do default to that sort of messaging but the reality is if you are someone experiencing violence in that that messaging is of very little help. So what we need to do, and this is, I think, where social marketing is so powerful, is understanding that there is more than just comms. What are the other wraparounds that we can apply? And so with social marketing in the holistic sense, uh, it is a very collaborative, interdisciplinary approach to any given behavioural challenge. So I think the comms is important. And, of course, we need to have messaging that says it's absolutely unacceptable, but we also need to have more targeted community-based programs, programs that target men, which are increasing. That used to be sort of quite unpopular, you know, 10 years ago. That was certainly not something that was seen as where one would want to spend money which I always found a little odd because certainly in behaviour change, typically what you're trying to do is target the people that are actually carrying out the behaviour that you want to influence. So I understand why that was the case, but it was always in terms of if we're actually serious about doing something with this, then we need to think about who we're targeting and why. So, yeah. Yeah, that there is an increase here as well in looking at offender behaviour mm. and helping people because, as you say, it's about prevention, isn't it, yeah. at the end of the day, and you need to look at the cause. And I just wondered about the – so looking at it through the lens of exchange mm. is even the concept, I think – if you take that into your engagement, that you are even, if you think, I don't know, sometimes I imagine anthropologists, you know, 100 years ago when everything was brand new and communities were meeting for the first time, there would always be a sense of exchange between people. There was a sense of equality. And it really does break down this top-down hierarchical messaging. If you go in through a sense of, I'm going to be asking someone to give something up, You know, why should they and who am I to ask? Mm. Is it even a problem for them? You know, it's a problem for public health policy. It's a problem, obviously, for organisations. But down when I get down, really down to it on an individual level or with a target community, is this even considered a problem for them? And what am I asking them to give up? And I think so often when you get, you know, if you start looking at it from an exchange perspective, it's just much more of an equal playground and you can have much more open dialogues and the insight will just come a lot more generously because you've gone in much more open hearted, not in delivery mode. And which is why I always say, you know, just shift from consultation if you can. Don't think of it as consultation mm. because that's just got so many negative connotation with, you know, policies and papers and things. Yeah, I think you're um, right. And it's the, it is in terms of the exchange piece, I think you alluded to it earlier. A lot of it is in and around the intangibles. And it, it's, every, it's sort of the other things that are associated with a given behavior that have value and meaning as well and you'd know this I mean in terms of smoking and alcohol you know in particular there's a whole load of other social benefits and value that, that sits around that that a lot of the time historically was never really addressed in terms of how we go about rolling out our interventions so the most successful programs and we have had a lot more success particularly with smoking and certainly here in Australia we've had phenomenal success with with smoking but that has been I think the result of a again a multifaceted approach that has sort of taken on board 
access policy and, and regulatory, uh, as well as sort of the mass media comms, so on and so forth. So I think it, it's just so important to understand that there are multiple levers and multiple different techniques that we can apply to any one problem. But really, the only way that you know what that perfect mix looks like, well, probably not such thing as a perfect mix, but what the mix ought to look like, uh, you know, is really by talking to the folks that you're looking to influence and engage and understanding what's needed to have them adopt the behaviour that you want. And and yeah. the, the exchange concept is certainly a useful tool to really simply start breaking down benefits and costs as they are seen by that target audience, not how we think they play out from where we're sitting in a fairly elevated position as program leads or policy leads. That's brilliant. Oh, Luke, you've explained it so succinctly and expertly. Really do appreciate it. We're going to stop there simply because we really are keen that these sessions are sort of minute, in-depth for people just to take home that one understanding of, well, the two reward and exchange here. Mm. But um, we have finished on our two questions that we always ask is what one book would you recommend? But obviously you don't have to stick to one. Yeah, I couldn't stick to one in fairness. I, and I had five or six and I've, I've narrowed it down to a couple. So look, I think in terms of social marketing, there's a book called Strategic Social Marketing. It's by Jeff French, who's the gentleman that set up the National Social Marketing Centre, uh, and Ross Gordon, Professor Ross Gordon, who's an Australian academic, both very well known. I like that book because it does a really fantastic job of talking about social marketing holistically, not just, and I think breaks down a few misconceptions around what it is and isn't. So it's a really good starting place for people that are wanting to learn, I think, the basics, but also extend themselves a little as well. Free economics as my sort of behavioural economics go-to, I think is a fantastic book. Really, really, really well put together. It's an older book, but it's I, I read it over and over again, so definitely worth a read. And the other one is by a guy called Mark Stevenson, and it's called An Optimist's Tour of the Future. And it, it's that, I think, again, sort of, it, it's about, we're living in the best time in history, I suppose, at the moment. I mean, it's easy to lose sight of that. Like, actually, you know, people are healthier than they've ever been. It's a good time to be alive, and I think this book's a really good reminder of that, but it also paints a really optimistic picture about what might be coming. So it's a, it's a futurist type book, but really interesting read, I think. Um, yeah, so okay. that's three. Okay, let's say the name again on that final one. So the final one is called An Optimist's Tour of the Future, and it's by a gentleman called Mark Stevenson. It's really well written and uh, lots of interviews. So he just interviews some absolutely fascinating people. Yeah, so it's a great read if you're, well, when we get back on planes, it's a great one to take on a plane and have a read. Yeah, one day, one day. Mm, As Luke knows, my family's down in Australia, so I'm really hoping to get to come and see them. um, And uh, so our final question is, what makes you your best self? I was going to go, so there's, again, I can never come up with one straight answer. So there's two, I mean, first of all, it's time with family. I've got a beautiful wife, two lovely kids. So for me, being able to turn my mind off, go camping out in the middle of nowhere with a solar panel and some water on board and just spend time with them and just unplugged, I think I, I really, really enjoy. And the other thing is is theatre. So I'm starting to get back into theatre. Uh, so I really enjoy being in the wings or, or on stage. Oh, so yeah, the dramatic is good fun. Ah, 
Yeah, your creative side. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. It's creative, but it also allows you, you just mix. I mean, just like theatre is just a great mixing pot. So you just get all sorts of different people from different walks of life that you'd never otherwise connect with. So I really enjoy that aspect as well. It's great. Oh, Luke, that's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on um, and explaining the concepts and sharing the domestic violence example, which will be really relevant to a lot of our listeners. I will pop in the show notes, the links to the books, but also the Behaviour Change Collaborative so you can explore more about Luke's work. And also I'll pop in the National Social Marketing Centre. As Luke said, it's still alive and flourishing and it has its own website. So I'll pop that in. And Luke, if anyone needs to get hold of you or would like to ask more questions, what's the best way for them to follow you or contact you? Oh, look, my name is not particularly common, so I'm on all the usual social channels, but they can also just contact me at luke at the bcc.org.au. But I think if you Google my name, because it is so rare, I'll pop up. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much again, Luke. Great. Take Thanks care. so much, Ruth. Cheers. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out the Autumn Boot Camp on our website, www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk. Check out the new bonus and please do book your place because spaces are limited. Thanks for listening. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, show us some love and leave a review on iTunes. We'll leave you with Ruth's favorite quote from Alice in Wonderland. I knew who I was this morning, but I've changed a few times since then. Got a favorite quote about the magic of change? Tell us over at the Behavior Change Marketing Bootcamp Group on LinkedIn. Join us for a Mad Hatter's Tea Party, virtually, 